Uh, once again, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us for a time of worship, and we pray that the Lord will find it acceptable uh, in His sight. Let me pray as we begin our consideration of the passage from uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Our loving and heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us around your word here in your church as Mary's this evening. We pray that you will teach us by your spirit, not only to hear, to understand intellectually, but also to internalize it in our hearts so that we may be able to, to obey you. And we know that this obedience is not on our own strength, but on yours. And Father, now as I speak, please help me to speak clearly and faithfully. I pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, good evening, everyone. Over the past few weeks, we have been discussing the book of Ephesians, and we have seen how uh, life was seen through the eyes of King Solomon, the preacher, arguably one of the smartest and one of the wisest men who ever lived on the earth. Ecclesiastes was written under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And uh, King Solomon utters one of the arguable, once again, most distressing uh, phrases that you can find in the Bible. He says this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And in the past couple of weeks, over a period, short period of about five to six days, I have seen what this actually can mean. For I have been involved in one way or another with three funerals, one burial, and two cremations of people who came from different backgrounds, theological, social, and economic. If this life is all there is, friends, then death is indeed the great distressing end of all the vanity, the futility, the uselessness of life. Marine or terrestrial, plant or animal, beasts or human, all organic life on this earth will end in death. Friends, yes indeed, if this life is all there is, then everything we do, everything that we achieve, everything that we consider to be important is meaningless, a futility, a vanity. For we all die. And after that, after a while, no one, be, be, no one even remembers what we have been or what we have done or what we were trying to achieve. But we also saw that the book of Ecclesiastes point us inexorably towards one thing, that life is lived in the fear of judgment of God, that death is not the end of everything, but we who believe in Jesus Christ have got this future in front of us. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. We have discussed this over the past few weeks. And friends, today as we start our new series, on Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, we will see a picture of life 
seen not through the eyes of the preacher, King Solomon, but through the eyes of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I believe, I think, that Ephesians will focus our eyes and our attention on two big, big things. Oh, firstly, it will focus our eyes on a glorious vision of eternal life with the victorious Lord Jesus when all the authorities and all the powers on earth and heaven will have been placed under his feet. And as he gathers his faithful people to be together with him, a glorious vision of eternal life with our Lord Jesus Christ where all the faithful, like you and me, are headed. Secondly, it also shows us an equally glorious mission for this life that the faithful are to witness to Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has granted to all of us. Friends, Ephesians will show us that Jesus has given us our final destination. He has shown us that. And our journey towards it is not a futility or a vanity, but, but one that is full of promise, full of purpose, full of excitement, if you like, and full of action, calling us for action. Now, please turn with me to page 1163 of the Church Bible as Paul introduces us to this vision and Christian mission in the first two verses of the book of Ephesians. And there is a sermon guide at the center of the bulletin as we consider this passage under the theme, God's Will in Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, let us look at God's will in Paul. In the first part of verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, what is this word apostle? What does it mean? In a simple form, the word apostle just simply means one who is sent. One who is sent by the person who sent him. He's an apostle for someone. However, this word is used in a very special way in the synoptic gospels to describe the, the intimate original group of 12 disciples who have been personally chosen by Jesus to be with him, who, who lived with him for three years and sat at his feet learning from our Lord. They were then to witness to his teachings. They were then to personally witness to his power, supernatural power over nature and over everything, over, over the, um, the demons, over sickness, over nature itself. They were going to be the personal witness to his suffering, his death, his resurrection and his glorification, his ascension to glory by the side of the Lord, uh, by the side of his Father, God. They were therefore the indispensable and primary or original authority on which Jesus' church was to be established and formed on earth. Now, there's the first group. But the same emphasis on the word apostle is also used by Paul on three other people that he mentioned in his um, um, epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul mentioned and called Barnabas an apostle. Now, if you remember, Barnabas was Paul's early mentor and fellow mission worker on his first missionary journey uh, to Cyprus and to Lower Galatia. 
The second person that uh, Paul gave the title to was written by him in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in Galatians chapter 1. He called James, the Lord's brother, who was a key Jerusalem leader uh, in the first century AD. And the third person that Paul gave this title to can be found in 1 Corinthians 4. It is Apollos, Paul's fellow mission worker at Ephesus and later a key evangelist in Corinth. Now, friends, Paul doesn't tell us why he used the title of apostle on them, this special emphasis on them. But I believe, I think, it could be because of their critical role as leaders in the formation, the establishment of the early church, as described by Luke in the book of Acts, even though they were not part of the original group of 12 disciples gathered by Jesus himself personally. Now, these are the two groups of people. And besides this, we find in, in Paul's um, episode, epistles that Paul call, calls himself an apostle in many of them, including here in Ephesus. Uh, for example, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in Galatians, in Colossians, in 1st and 2nd Timothy, and also in the book of Titus, he calls himself and introduces himself to his audience by the title Apostle, I, Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. Because Paul has witnessed the risen Christ on the Damascus road and was the Lord's chosen instrument to the Gentiles as described by Luke in Acts chapter 9. And not only that, he was commanded by Christ to present the message of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ glorified for the salvation of his people to the Gentiles. Paul was, was thus, rightly so, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then what does it mean by God's will? Does it mean that Paul became an apostle because that was the right thing for him to do? After Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road? So that Paul could atone for what he had done to the followers of Christ, catching them and putting them in jail and directly and indirectly causing them to be killed? Could Paul have ignored God's will and gone back to persecuting Christians the way he had done before? Can we find an answer to all these questions? Well, friends, we can. We can find the answer in an earlier letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And if you are still following this, please turn with me to page 1158, to Galatians 1, verses 15 to 16. And this is what it says. Let me read it to you. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. You see, the answer is given. This apostleship was God's sovereign will for Paul. He could not have disobeyed. In fact, there was no power in the whole universe that could have, presented, uh, that could have prevented this from happening. For the Almighty God has decreed has decreed this for Paul even before Paul was born. He has willed that Paul, though he didn't deserve it, would be set aside 
to carry the message of salvation in his son Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. Paul was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the sovereign, the unchanging, and the unchallengeable will of God the Father. Now when we move, we move from there to God's will for his people, in his people, that we can find the second part of verse 1. And Paul writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now friends, the first word that, catch our, uh, that catches our attention is saints. Who are they? Who are these people that we call saints? Well friends, I grew up uh, being influenced by stained glass windows in churches and by religious paintings that are exhibited in, in museums to think of saints as this special, special group of people, you know, uh, special people who during their lives have qualified for this title by their holy living and performing at least two miracles. Not living people, mind you, but dead people uh, conferred this title by human beings. But if you study the Bible carefully, the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible uses saints 80 times from the book of Chronicles through to Revelations to describe people who were and are still living at that material time, not dead ones. That is the first thing. The Bible uses the word saints to describe living people. Secondly, the Bible uses it always in the plural form, saints. Now, some of you may come up to me later to point out that Philippians 4 verse 21 uses the singular saint, and you will be right. But notice that even then, it is used to denote the plural and corporate nature of Paul's farewell greetings to his people. He wrote this in Philippians 4.21. Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. You see the corporate, the plural nature of uh, the word saint, even when it is used here in the singular? It is a plural form. So friends, who are saints, as described in Scripture? Well, they are simply those who have been set apart by God to be holy, just as He is holy. Not holy on our own right, but holy because God is holy. Now, I'm going to draw, I'm going to go outside of Philipp, uh, Ephesians and draw on Romans 1 verse 7 on page 1121 to point out another thing that Paul says about saints. And this is what he says in Romans 1 verse 7 on page 1121. He addressed this to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Our friends, Paul thinks and um, discuss sainthood in this way. Sainthood is not up to you or to me or any human or any human agency or any human counsel. We, you and me, we are called by God to be saints because God loves us. And we cannot earn this merit. We cannot earn this status by being holy because we can desperately go running around, but we will never be holy and we will fail to meet God's holy standards. That status is conferred freely and unconditionally to us by God. How? In His Son, Jesus Christ. And we cannot confer it on anyone 
Friends, it is not our call, pun intended. You and I who put our trust in Jesus, on us, God has conferred the status of saint. We are all saints, set apart for God. And later in Ephesians, you will see that wonderful position of those who are saints. We are the ones who will be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, just as Paul was called to be an apostle for Jesus Christ before he was even born. Saints are beloved by God, adopted according to the purpose of His will, His sovereign choice, not ours, just as God, just as Paul could not have chosen to disobey Him and become something else rather than an apostle for Christ Jesus. Saints are given an inheritance that is now guaranteed by God, the Holy Spirit. Our friends, this is what I think. I think that sainthood is an outpouring of the love of the triune God who has called us to belong to Him, poor, miserable sinners, unworthy though we are. Now we go to the word Ephesians. Now notice how Paul addresses this letter to the Christian in Ephesus. Now, we read from Acts 18 that Paul's first visit to this city was a very short one. But when he left, he left Aquila and Priscilla there to carry on his work of spreading the gospel message of salvation. A little bit later, on his third missionary journey, Paul stayed at, at Ephesus for over two years, and this is described in Acts 19. He made this city his base as he, reaches, as he reached out with the gospel message from there to the other surrounding cities around Ephesus. And this time when he left, he left Timothy there, uh, his young protege, to continue the gospel work. And you can find this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We can therefore see that Paul had a long association with the Ephesian church and was now writing to the Christians there. However, he had a proviso, though, for the, for the saints in Ephesus and by extension for all of us. He has this to say, saints of all ages are not just to be passively receiving the blessing of God, but are called to continue to be faithful in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that saints are to continue to have a loving and living relationship with the loving and living Jesus Christ our Lord that outpours itself, that shows itself to the outside world in a living and loving relationship of service to others around us. Saints are called to be faithful to the Christ Jesus. Now, as we come to the second verse of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for God's goodwill to be with his people. And this, and this is what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this goodwill is composed of two components. Firstly, grace. Now, what's this word grace? The word simply means undeserved goodwill, or favor, or blessing, freely given by God to us. As God works to redeem 
to sanctify and to glorify His people. Three very difficult words that sums up in one single word only, salvation. God acting to save unworthy, sinful human beings like you and me to an eternal life with Him in His Son, Jesus Christ. A little bit further in his letter, Paul explains in chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, and let me read that to you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God. Our oh, friends, you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot run around desperately seeking salvation. Only God can save us by his grace. Now the second component of God's goodwill is peace. Now what is peace? We all know what peace is. It's the opposite of war. The cessation of enmity and hostility. And how here I'm going to draw again from the book of Romans. This time I draw from Romans 5 verse 1. As Paul speaks of peace with God, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But here you notice that in Ephesians, as we go through later on, the emphasis is not on restoration of peace um, between God and man, because that has already been done by the Christ Jesus, His Son, through His work on the cross. No, and Ephesians is going to emphasize on peace between Christians of Jewish origin and those from a Gentile origin. We read this in um, chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The emphasis in, in the book of Ephesians will be on peace between the different uh, groups of origin, the Jewish, Christ, uh, Jewish Christians and those of a Gentile origin. Now, friends, as we read this very carefully, we see that only those who truly understand and those who truly have received the grace of God will know the true meaning of His peace that He gives to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that once again to you. We will find that only those who truly understood and have received the grace of God will know the true meaning of His peace that He has given to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, we passionately desire to extend this peace to everyone with whom we come into contact. And so, friends, as we end this very short passage, what can we bring home with us today? Well, firstly, I think most of us who have uh, heard some time or another, some people say to us that they don't know what God's will is for them. And sometimes this is used as an excuse not to do anything at all for Him. Well, I believe and I think that Anything you can do for God's kingdom cannot be far from what He wills for each one of us. Be it in tithing, bringing money into the church 
so that there is funds available for extending God's kingdom in, in this church, for extending it and reaching out to, uh, to many others uh, through the gospel message, or be it in the simple things like serving tea or coffee at the tea terrace, or be it in greeting and welcoming and talking to newcomers, making them feel at home, making them feel that this is a church that's warm and welcoming, be it in visiting the sick or the dying or those who are aged, be it in caring for those who cannot care for themselves, for those who are underprivileged, for example. Oh, friends, there are thousands, literally, of ministries that are looking and begging for people to be involved in. There's the music industry for the, uh, the mu music ministry that, that we were begging for, for male singers in the 8.30 a.m. service. And we're still waiting for male singers to come on board. There are so many other things. There are people who will look after the kids and look after the uh, um, uh, pri prison ministry, for example, which we don't have, to, we don't have at the present moment thousands of ministries that are waiting for us. And friends, you know what? As you start with the simple ones, God will find more worthy ones for you to do. And if that scares you, don't be afraid. Or use that as an excuse that you are not capable of doing them. Because you know why? God will equip you to do them. Okay, that's the first thing, knowing God's will for us. Now secondly, we can bring home the fact that being living saints calls for us to have a loving and living relationship with our Lord Jesus. That means seeking to know more about Him, to know what He wills for us. If we say that we don't know God's will for us, well, this is a great opportunity for us to find out more. We need to find out more about our Lord Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, the first thing that we can do is to study more about Him from the Bible. We can do this in formal classes, that we run here at uh, Samaris in our Tuesday night training or, or in other reputable uh, agencies somewhere in the Klang Valley. Or we can study the Bible in small groups here at the church or at home groups, no matter uh, which congregation the homes, uh, you know, which congregation uh, those homes belong to, the people belong to. Or we can help to serve others by pointing them to the salvation that can only be found in the gospel of Christ, bringing them to Christianity as plot or to life as plot, and now being run by our church in different languages. And one very important aspect of this loving and living relationship with our Lord Jesus is to spend private time with Him, private time with Him in prayer, committing ourselves to Him, our cares, our burdens, our fears, as well as our hopes and our happiness to Him, knowing that He will be there to share them with us, to carry our burdens for us, and also to rejoice in our joys and uh, pleasures. That is the second thing. Living saints are called to be in a loving and living relationship with Jesus. And the third thing we can bring home with us is to respond to the grace and peace of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, responding positively. Now, one powerful witness of the church to the world is our love for each other and our mutually supportive role uh, for each other. But our roles go far beyond 
the influence of the church, go far beyond the church, right into the outside world. And here is where I would like to urge each one of us, myself included, to look at all the areas of our lives where we are not experiencing peace and harmony, be it in the, in the home, in the family, be it at the workplace, be it in church, or be it in the general uh, society around us. And then if we find areas where there is this disharmony, there is this lack of peace that we are feeling, then we should ask ourselves this question, whether we are truly recognizing the grace of God who sacrificed his son for us. And when we recognize that, we should take action immediately to reconcile ourselves to each other, however difficult that might be. Now, we were talking about witnessing. Witnessing also means complementing each other's weaknesses with our own strengths and doing this willingly and proactively not grumblingly and hostilely ordering people around or letting people order us around, but doing it willingly and proactively. And most importantly, not indulging in malicious talk behind other people's back, which is unhelpful and damaging, but speaking to each other in love and understanding. We witness by being willing to give up our time to listen to them, to hear their problems, and to, to share in their joys, to be the peacemakers when there is peace to be uh, shared. And not to be the batu apis, uh, which is a local word that just means the troublemakers who set the fuel on fire and add fuel to the fire when it has been set. Not to be the batu apis, but to be the peacemakers. Our friends, these are the three things that we can bring home with us this evening. Let us be worthy of all the gifts, all the blessings that God has given to us. Salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, and His family, the church, for us, as we walk this earth together with them, they are holding us up in the church as we walk this temporary life. And the eternal inheritance held for us in heaven until the Lord's return and bring us home to be with Him forever. Don't let us be unworthy of these gifts and blessings that God has given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And we pray that you will help us in your spirit to witness to you as living saints who have a shared vision of the eternal life with you in your Son, Jesus Christ and a living, loving mission on this earth as we travel this earth together in your Son, Jesus Christ, uplifted by your Holy Spirit. So we pray to you, Lord, do help us as we poor sinners seek to be worthy, to be living saints of yours, people set aside for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.